0: So Richard Sherriff is co-founder and managing partner at Strategia Worldwide. After graduating from Oxford, he served in the British Army for 37 years, commanding soldiers on operations or in combat at every level from platoon to division and rising to the highest rank before retiring from the Army as NATO's Deputy Supreme Commander Europe. Richard is co-founder and managing partner of Strategia, and in 2016, his novel, 2017, War with Russia was published in the UK, USA and Poland. It became a bestseller and has been translated into eight languages. He is an honorary fellow also of Exeter College, Oxford. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe so more people get to discover the great content uh, and speakers that we feature on the channel. And if you want to help the work we do, please do consider becoming a patron or buy me a coffee. Richard, if people enjoy this interview, I should point them towards our previous two conversations on the channel, and we'll be picking up, I think, from where we left off there.
1: I, I hope so. And Jonathan, it's a uh, as, as always, it's a it's a real real pleasure to be to be with you to to uh, discuss these these really difficult and intractable issues.
0: And uh, we know over the last year and a half, Ukraine has dominated the headlines, but. In the last couple of months, it started to drop off. And now, of course, we have the terrible events in Israel. What kind of a risk do you think it is to the support that the allies are providing to Ukraine at the moment?
1: Well, I think it's, a, it's, it's in a sense, it's, as far as Ukraine strategically is concerned, this is one of the big, big issues that the events of the 7th of October in um, in Israel, uh, emanating from the Gaza Strip, have completely dominated the headlines um and focus particularly american support american political activity on 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 the middle east and this is going to play out over some time to come so the two are inextricably linked and uh, of course ukraine is on the back pages now no question about it but it's also partly on the back pages because of the sense that uh the offensive started in june is now beginning to run out of steam. And I'm saying that as a sort of outsider. I don't believe it is. But it it could be perceived that way because what we're seeing are very marginal, bit-by-bit gains in the Zaporizhia area particularly. Uh, The Russians have recently, last week and the week before, launched a major attack in the Avdivkar area which the Ukrainians have beaten off and caused really significant casualties to the Russians. But it's not up there as a sort of immediate issue. So, of course, it's going to be on the back pages. And this is a risk. Why? Because it risks the level of support and Western attention, notoriously short-termist, fickle, driven by the media, will go where the media are pushing. And we should do everything we can to keep Ukraine up there as the, for me, I think it remains the existential issue for Europe uh, and the transatlantic community. And it's got much, much wider global um, implications
0: as well. So rather than a strategic decision on part of the Ukrainian military, what I hear from many people that I speak to is that rather than throwing their troops into very costly assaults on the Russian lines, the well fortified, Russian lines, as perhaps they were persuaded to do earlier in the year, the Ukrainian military are very mindful to conserve the lives of their troops.
1: Well, of course, economy of force is one of the principles of war taught in certainly the British principles of war taught in you know, taught at Sandhurst and taught in every staff college, uh, and it's absolutely right because this is this was always going to be a long-term business. This was not going to be a case of one offensive. Uh, and the war was going to be over by Christmas. And I don't think people really understand that in the the West. I think that that was an assumption that somehow the Ukrainians would replicate the speed and um, decisiveness of the battles northeast of Kharkiv and last year and the liberation of Kherson. But after the liberation of Kherson, I think we have to acknowledge an opportunity was missed in every campaign in history there is a moment when the initiative is there to be grasped. And if you can really grasp it, uh, and this is what any general is trying to do, to identify when that moment, the moment when the initiative can be really passed, that probably came after the liberation of Kherson. And because Ukraine had not been supported to the extent it should have been, if the tap had been turned on back in February last year, at the, right at the start of the war, and we had not had this incremental drip, drip, no, you can't have it, no, you can't have it, oh, well, yes, you can have it approach that I think it was exemplified by the, the issue of tanks. Uh, and to a certain extent, is still going on over aircraft and particularly the F-16. Then Ukraine could have been in a much better position uh, last November to seize the initiative after the Russians extracted from Kherson but they didn't have the combat power to do so because they didn't have the support. And the consequence of that was that Serovakin, the Russian commander, was able to withdraw the Russians in pretty good order, reorganize the Russian front line in the eastern Donbass, and start digging in, uh, and then dig in over the winter. And what you saw, I think, over the winter was this very painstaking, extensive establishment and preparation of deep defences in depth with minefields and obstacle belts and tank traps and, and and the like and the russians are good at this and if they do you know the russians will do this by the book and of course that has presented the ukrainians with one heck of a challenge to break through and so and and, and as you alluded you know at the start of the offensive the ukrainians did launch a, a combined arms attack uh to start the breakthrough But to do that without the level of air cover that they need was, you know, was almost always going to be a a real challenge. And so they found it. And so they've had to go back to do things the Ukrainian way, quite rightly. And if they had done it, perhaps the Ukrainian way from the start, perhaps things might have been easier for them. And it's been slow. It's been grinding. It's been precise. It's been economy of force, preserving the force as much as as possible, although, inevitably, the casualties will continue to be very high. Um, And it's going to take time to break through and the challenge now is to penetrate the Russian defences in sufficient depth and at sufficient speed uh, to prevent the Russians building up more defences behind as they go. And of course, at the same time, there've been other 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 areas. It's not just in the sort of the southern Zaporizhia area. It's the fighting around Bakhmut. It's the fighting around Avdivka and up in, way up in the north as well. We've seen Russian offensives up in the north and around Avdivka. So I think we need to get used to the idea. And I've said before that this is, you know, this is not unlike, to me, it looks like you know, there are parallels with the Allied campaign in Italy in 1943 to 45. One slogging counteroffensive, one offensive after another. In that case, geographically, of course, creeping up the 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 you know the heel and toe and leg of Italy. Not com- comparison, not 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 not, not no, no comparison from a topographical or geographic perspective. But it's all about building up the capability, of the combat power for an offensive, which requires equipment, ammunition, 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 training. And then you launch it and then you, you know, and then gradually you begin to, uh, to make progress. And um, I think Ukrainians have always said that that this counteroffensive was not going to be enough. It's going to require several. And I think we should be looking at at least another two years.
0: And when you look at Avdivka, which is on the surface looks like an absolutely uh, disastrous effort on the part of Russia, uh, using failed tactics of armor in single file, getting hit by artillery drones and so on. Um, And you look at Suroyviken and his defensive lines, isn't that a completely different strategy? One is essentially digging in and saying, these are the lines of contact and we want the war to end here and then push for maybe uh, some kind of resolution. Now you're seeing offensive attacks Aren't these two entirely different uh, sort of strategies? And does it perhaps suggest there is confusion at the top? You know, right, right at the top, led by Gerasimov, Shagul, and of course Putin. Yeah, I think
1: that's right. I mean, and, and you you know your 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 point about Syrovakin and and you know he was the man who achieved a, a you know a degree of success in that he stopped the Russians going backwards, and he stabilised the Russian front line um but he's clearly out um he was out of uh you know because probably you know he was not he was out when when he announced the defensive posture uh, and then of course with the Prigozhin mutiny and and his alleged links with that uh he he's completely out so goodness knows where he is now the attacks around abdivka but all the hallmarks of 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 Gerasimov, who who, who, who you know the blundering battering away uh expending completely regardless of the costs with, that we saw in the attacks around Bakhmut last year um and one can only hope that by launching such offensives at such cost it continues to whittle down not only russian men and materiel, but almost more important that the russian will uh, because that will is going to be pervasive, and if that message can get through elsewhere, then it's going to undermine the morale and capability of other Russian troops. Men and material can be replaced, but you can't—you know—you can't—you can't put
0: fire into the belly where there is no fire. And you mentioned some of the weaknesses of the media coverage. Um, another trend seems to be to pin. Maybe exaggerated hopes on the delivery of new weapon systems, uh, attackems in, in particular, uh, has happened recently. And then, when uh, you know there there is an initial decisive, you know, uh, success of some sort or another, and then the narrative lapses back into this sort of uh, uh, label of sort of failure. Um, so I'll probably reframe that question a little bit. Um, doesn't the media fall into a trap of perhaps? exaggerating the importance of delivery of new munitions and capabilities and then goes back into a fairly uh, maybe unrealistic or disappointed narrative um when the war falls back into its sort of not status quo but in their terms you know uh, no dramatic advance on the on the front line
1: uh, absolutely right the media uh, the, me- the, the 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 media continue to build up expectations unrealistically. They built up expectations about the nature of the offensive, the counteroffensive. And and if you'd read the media, you'd have assumed that actually all that was going to happen was that, uh, the Ukrainians were going to launch a counteroffensive, shock and awe, and it was gonna be like the coalition cutting through um, Iraqi lines in 1991, wrapping them up and, you know, the the war's over and it's back home for tea and medals. Uh, And to a certain extent, the same in 2003 uh, with the coalition in Iraq on the the shock and awe offensive there. Although, of course, you know, we know what happened thereafter. So that was completely irresponsible of the media. And then, of course, I would also deplore some of the other media from across the Atlantic, which which talked about them, which criticised the Ukrainians for not doing it the American way, not doing it the NATO way. But of course, they couldn't do it that way because they didn't have the capability, notably air power. And there is no way any NATO army uh, or military force would try and launch that most difficult of operations of war, a break into well-established, well-defended positions without an extended period of, 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 of air battle to soften up and destroy uh, positions on the ground. And we saw that in 91 and, and the same again in, in 2003 with the Allies in other uh, coalition in uh, in iraq um and then of course you're absolutely right clamor for attackers attackums comes in and there's an assumption that somehow it's all going to be you know it's all going to be over uh, and we've just got to be balanced and recognise that this thing takes time and i think give credit where credit is due um credit for example to the ukrainians for the persistent Way they have broken into Russian defenses, lifted Russian minefields often manually by night, broken through quite significant defensive positions, continue to 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 work their way through. and on the on the deep battle side, absolutely give credit to the fact the way the Ukrainians have made Crimea incredibly difficult for the Russians. The attack on the Black Sea Fleet, the fact that the Russian fleet now appears to be, Uh, evacuating and moving to Novorossiysk because Sevastopol is no longer, it's no longer possible to operate from Sevastopol. So these are really significant um, deep battle efforts on the Ukrainians, all of which undermine the coherence of the Russians.
0: And we're also seeing the emergence of drone warfare. And, of course, Ukraine has innovated those techniques. It's developed uh, you know, large-scale uh, skills of drone operators. Are we also now seeing how drone usage um, is emerging as a military strategy? Is it more um, you know, supportive of a kind of attritional strategy rather than a sort of blitzkrieg one that you were describing uh, vis-a-vis Iraq?
1: I would put drones under the heading of combat support absolutely integral essential and fundamental combat support because they rather than a, you know you're describing them as a strategy this is part of this is one of the tools with which military strategy and campaign design can be um can be pursued and prosecuted and because ultimately of course drones meet that, You know, answer that question, that persistent question that, you know, the Duke of Wellington asks when he talked about it's all about trying to see what the fellow on the other side of the hill is doing. Well, now we can see what the fellow on the other side of the hill is doing. And this is, and and to your your question about attrition and and manoeuvre, well, of course, all warfare is about a balance of tradition and attrition and manoeuvre. You have, you know, it's called fire and movement. In in most simple terms, you have to engage, you have to fix, you have to target, uh, you have to be prepared to attack, uh, and in order to create the space for manoeuvre. And drones are integral to that. They're integral to the attritional battle because it allows you to identify where your enemy is, so you can bring fire to bear rapidly and slickly and with great agility. But it also identifies the gaps. And, and when your enemy, when that opportunity is there to be seized, um, what Lawrence called that kingfisher moment—you know, that moment where, uh, where where the general can, that you know, the commanding general can really seize the opportunity—going back to my points about initiative uh, and launch maneuver. But the two are mutually dependent on each other. They're not in distinct. They're not distinct. Distinctive parts of of, of military operations.
0: Now, people might wonder why we're focusing so much on the media in this conversation. And it seems to me that where we're at in the war is up until now, there's been a high degree of uncertainty about whether Ukraine can win, whether it can regain its territories. It seems that now that is becoming uh, a higher probability. Uh, Therefore, Russia is perhaps investing more in the so-called propaganda side, the informational side to create splits with allies, um, to erode public belief or interest in the topic. And then, of course, there's the topic of distraction. Now, there's no firm evidence linking Russia to the Hamas attacks. Um, but Russia does, of course, have strong links to Iran. Uh, and Hamas were entertained in the Kremlin last year. Um, In reality, however, whether they had a hand in the timing and scale of these attacks, they are potentially working in Russia's favor um, to really use up the media oxygen um, and to uh, take attention away uh, from from potential sort of failures on the Ukrainian front. But it's perhaps part of a wider sort of media campaign to uh, malign Ukraine to diminish people's support for it, what is the danger there of the informational war? And do you think we are engaging enough in that sphere? Um, at least those governments that still uh, support Ukraine.
1: I don't think so. Um, the answer is there are real risks here, and of course, what what's happened in in um, in in on the seventh of October in uh, Israel is absolute. Uh, manner from heaven for for Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin because it allows him to uh to so you know it because of the distraction factor uh and 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 because of the you know the the, the fact that military capability from particularly from america may may be you know may 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 have to go to may may have to go to support Israel. Um, I think your point about about the you know, the information message is really important and Western leaders I think have got to continue to focus on Ukraine um, uh, and, and the clarity you know, I think this is something that the, that NATO needs to really continue to maintain that drumbeat uh, about the importance of supporting Ukraine, putting in place a properly thought through NATO strategy that says starts with the end state. What is the desired end state? A Europe whole, free, and secure, in which Ukraine is an integral part and part of the NATO alliance, uh, and which and the NATO alliance in a position to continue to deter what will long term be a Russian threat that is not going to go away. The Russian desire to rebuild a second Russian empire is not going to go any go away anytime soon. I mean, you're a Russian, a, you're a Russian, a student of Russia, you know, much better than me. Russia's never been in a, a, anything other than an empire. It's never been a sovereign state uh, a, a, such as Britain or France or Germany or Italy or, or you know, other other Western European countries. Um, and it is driven by this imperialist mindset that still thinks of Ukraine as an integral province of, of mother Russia. Uh, and they will continue to pose a threat to Ukraine. And so that. We need to be broadcasting this reality out loud and clear, uh, together with the role that NATO is going to play
0: and be, to, will have to play to ensure Europe stays at peace. And it's one of the problems as well, the fact that we look at different uh, theatres of conflict as separate geopolitical issues, separate policy areas. So you have Syria on the one hand, you have Africa on the other, Um you have Israel, Hamas, Iran, etc., and you have Ukraine. And they're being dealt with almost as if there is no connection between them. This is possibly not the way Russia, Iran, North Korea, the so-called uh, axis of intolerant countries see it. Um, and one of the scary views that I read earlier this week is that the attacks we see in Israel, the ongoing slaughter in Syria... These are just opening salvos into what essentially uh, is or could be seen as a sort of continuum of uh, a, a larger conflict between autocratic and uh, so-called democratic states.
1: Uh, uh, I think that's right. Um, and you know, I've, I I, mean, I, th- I think one number one, I think we've got to be careful of taking counsel of our fears. Um, and I've seen articles. Asking a question was what happened on the seventh of October, you know, the shot in Sarajevo on the on the on, on July July nineteen fourteen. Um, I think as long as we are aware of the, you know, we've got to be aware of the connectivity between these 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 wars. We've talked about the connect, to direct connectivity between Ukraine and the Israel's likely anticipated attack on Gaza. The potential for this to develop into a regional war, a regional conflict, to drag much greater, many, many more players into it. And who knows, the potential much wider with, with other uh, axes countries, uh, uh, support countries supporting Russia, notably, of course, North Korea, now absolutely allied to Russia and providing military support to, to Russia. Uh, and this requires Western uh, and indeed global leaders to think think globally and think strategically rather than thinking narrowly and in a focused way, and to understand the relationships uh, and the potential um, second and third order effects of, 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 of one action on another. And so I think that you know, this is the time for Western leaders, and you know may not be particularly germane to this podcast, but I think it's worth saying. Western leaders have got to be so careful about being sucked into being seen to support a Netanyahu-led blitzkrieg destruction of Gaza, which is going to inflame global opinion. Great question marks about whether it's actually going to make Israel any more secure by destroying Hamas. And if the West is seen to be, in a sense, supporting that, the knock-on effects elsewhere will be massive. The other point I'd make is the knock-on effect of the West not following through in ukraine not continuing to provide ukraine with the weapons the ammunition the training and the support it needs the potential for what uh, what, what what is happening in ukraine to turn into a long-running stalemate along the lines of the iran iraq war of the 1980s um i mean these are massive because if that happens that will merely embolden autocrats like xi particularly President Xi, to pursue his uh, agenda in in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Whereas a decisive victory for Ukraine, which is achievable, will send a a defeat for Russia, a humiliation for Putin, will send such a powerful signal that the democracies of the West are prepared to put their money where their mouth is to support a democracy, Ukraine, fighting for us all, and send a very powerful message that military military adventurism, such as Putin has demonstrated with his genocidal war, is just not on in 2023 and, and just not worth pursuing. I think it's a real
0: balancing point. And this is a real media minefield. I mean, to an extent, uh, watching the coverage, there's a couple of shocking things I think have emerged over the last uh, two weeks. One is that all the lessons the media seems to have learned about uh, using proper sort of OSINT data, uh, querying narratives that come out of the Kremlin vis-a-vis, anything to do with, say, missile strikes, et cetera, they've got much better. It took a while, but they got much better at not necessarily relaying the propaganda story directly without querying it. And yet, in the wake of the Hamas attacks, um, And this is in no way to sort of belittle suffering of uh, individual Palestinian civilians and so on. But the media seem to have completely forgotten those lessons about how to treat information that come from governments or terrorist organizations or so on. And we've seen some diabolical uh, reporting with with very little, uh, I would say, sort of checks and balances in place um, to put context around it. What we also seem to have seen, and this is something that many Ukrainians uh, have have asked me about, horror at and justified the horror at the targeting of civilians. Um, when it was thought that a hospital was targeted uh, in 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 Gaza, there was huge uh, global outrage. That turned out actually to be more propaganda than than reality. Um, but over the last uh, almost two years. We've seen hundreds, hundreds of clinics uh, erased um, right across uh, Ukraine. Not quite the same level of outrage, it seems. And in the last week, we have seen hospitals, clinics, civilian areas hit in Syria with barely any coverage. This is kind of worrying, is it not, that we that we do not seem to be able to get the media right. We do not seem to be able to. Communicate sort of facts and narratives and and put them, I would say, in a, in a helpful context.
1: Yeah, I think it, it is worrying. Um, I'm not quite sure what you'd do about it, but it yeah, if you'd been sitting watching the news on the night of that disastrous and horrific um, incineration of, of 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 on the, car, the hospital car park you probably would have assumed that this was a a mistake by the Israelis and that they, you know, an Israeli missile had gone in. And of course, that is what the Arab street took from that. The fact that afterwards it's been pretty conclusively proved, not least by the British government, that this was a a, a Hamas missile that that, that malfunctioned and fell back into the car park, causing it all is almost sort of lost in the noise. So you're dead right. It's that initial impression that is so, uh, that is so, so important. Um, But just in the Israeli context, you know, there are linkages here. Um, Precision and proportionality in 21st century conflict is absolutely fundamental because the nature of conflict in the 21st century is war among the people. And that places a massive responsibility on military commanders to view their operations through the prism of what impact is what I'm about to do going to have on the minds of the people I'm operating amongst. Because if I alienate the people, my own populations, my supportive populations, the people in the country that I'm conducting my my attacks neighbouring countries and the like. So the people covers a broad thing. But if I alienate the people, I'm gifting the advantage to the adversary. So it is in the interests of military commanders not to be indiscriminate, but to be precise, to be intelligence-led. Now, of course, it is really difficult to do that, particularly in, a, in an urban context. Um, and at the same time, just a you know a political point here, and there's another linkage here. Um, You know, look at Israel's activities. So, this is something that is a fact. And we've got to, I just think this is another elephant in the room that we cannot get away from. What Israel is doing in the West Bank is effectively colonizing another country's, another people's territory. Those settlements are illegal. Well, what is Russia trying to do in Ukraine? Colonize Ukraine. I think I make my point. You know, you can't support Israel without saying what you're doing in the West Bank is just not okay. And I think that support should be conditional.
0: And it does, it does erode uh, credibility. And as you say, it makes it easy for Russia to tie us in with that. They say, well, Israel is doing this and we're we're doing bad things as well, but it's all the same. And that is one of the foundations of Russian propaganda narratives is that authoritarianism, not that much different from, you know, plural societies and democracy. Um, Mm -hmm. And We've seen that play out a lot, uh, especially in the extreme left and extreme right, uh, which gets amplified by, by social media. Another label Russia puts on this is the multipolar world, which, as a concept, sounds quite reasonable. In practice, it seems to be an umbrella for um, less tolerant, more authoritarian regimes to exert their power and potentially it try and divide or intimidate the rest of the world either with economic incentives or even disincentives um what do you understand by this multipolar concept and how russia is weaponizing it
1: well to me this is all about the breakdown of the international the global order a global order put in place uh, in the middle of the 20th century after the the disasters of the first half of the 20th century the 20th century um to try and prevent those from happening again. And you know, international organizations like the European Union and NATO are good examples of that. But above all, it's the United Nations and the failure of the United Nations, where Russia, a signatory to the UN Charter of Human Rights, a permanent member of the Security Council, is led by an indicted war criminal and supported by another permanent member of the Security Council in President Xi and how the un you know and 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 the, how the un reforms itself to address this i simply don't know and that's beyond you know that's something it is one of the sort of imponderable challenges out there but so long and meanwhile what i think you what i think putin means by this multipolar world actually is ignore global organisations like the un treat them with total cynicism but at the same time build up other alliances and 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 supporting axes whether with hamas whether with iran and iran's iran's uh proxies like hamas and, and hezbollah um uh north korea or indeed democracies like india republic of south africa and brazil who frankly who who, who are in lee in a sense supporting russia's efforts uh, and frankly i'm you know let's be clear they should be looking at what 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 the assault on a democratic country in in uh, in, in uh, as such as is happening with Ukraine and, and frankly calling Russia out for it. but they're not
0: and Russia seems desperate to be part of major international institutions. obviously the u n. It's been trying to work its way into the Human rights Council of the u n as well. Um do you see that part of the process of of um, not just the ego of wanting to be seen as a uh, you know a great world power, but also becoming part of the institutions allows Russia to subvert them, corrupt them, make them uh, less potent, and even in some cases meaningless.
1: Uh, all of the above, but it also allows them to exert influence on other global south members of the United Nations to push the message that for example issues over food supplies the disruption of food supplies as a result of the ukraine war well you can blame that on the americans and, and and americans allies for for the sanctions being put on russia rather than blaming it on russia for what russia is doing to ukraine um it's about about influence and and that's and and through the un russia can apply influence and and, and subvert uh, subvert nations who might otherwise be on the side of the you know on the side of ukraine but i think the so what here again is for the the Western and the transatlantic community and 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 ukraine to really pursue active information and influence operations to tell the story as it really is uh in uh, across the world because it's one thing for the transatlantic community to support ukraine but that's not enough. It's got to be the global, a global support for Ukraine. And that's simply not happening, particularly as far as sanctions are concerned.
0: And again, the media narrative is an interesting one, isn't it? Because the assumption is still there that Russia wants to win, whatever that means, in Ukraine. <laughs> Whereas the situation you've described um, suggests that actually, as far as Russia's concerned, a victory is a continuation of war, a forever war that destabilizes um. That part of the world that prevents Ukraine from fully developing in a secure environment, its its economy and its institutions Um, and ongoing war allows Russia to leverage other relationships uh, around the world and erode uh, a rules based order. Based on that, does it not mean that actually a decisive uh, and expansive victory for Ukraine um, is possibly the most important thing we need to focus on achieving
1: it is absolutely absolutely um i mean just one point i'd pick up i think russia's aim uh ultimate uh, russia's aim to me is quite clear it is to eliminate ukraine eradicate ukraine from the map and incorporate ukraine into a greater russia Uh, and then put a russian governor in kiev and, and 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 go back to some czarist construct uh, under which ukraine is no more than a, a large adjunct to a, a greater russian empire uh, uh, and russia will will go on trying to achieve that um and that's again you know that, and hence the imperative of, of nato being ready to to stand up to the mark as far as and, and the way you know absolutely your point about achieving decisive victory is is critical what does victory look like victory is in the mind of is 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 instilling in the mind of putin or whoever is leading in the kremlin that russia cannot achieve the subjection of ukraine and will go on bleeding 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 interminably and cannot bleed interminably and the way to stop that is to accept that they can't go any further evacuate ukraine and leave ukraine as a sovereign territory The how you get there is really difficult, though, because Russia has got this inexhaustible supply of manpower material now supported by North Korea, manufacturing ammunition. It may not be very good, it may be pretty dodgy, it may not explode, it may explode prematurely or whatever, but they can still begin, they can still do that. And the manpower that they can just hoover up from across that vast country. Doesn't matter if they're just, if they're, you know, two-day old conscripts, as it were, put into the fight without any training. It's still manpower. And it's doing exactly what the Tsars did with legions of serfs, mass, mass, mass. But Ukrainian victory is really important. What does it look like? Well, I think for the center of gravity is Crimea. I think it you know that to me is the key. Number one, it's key to the future security of Ukraine because it's like a land. It's like an aircraft carrier more to the south coast of Ukraine. Whoever owns Crimea effectively can dominate the south coast. And the Russians cannot do that because they will threaten the south coast and the Ukrainian economy as long as they're there. So what? So get into a position. And this, you know, this doesn't mean an amphibious operation to land a major amphibious force in Ukraine or. To break through the peninsula, you know, the isthmus at the northern tip of Crimea, which would be fantastically difficult and expensive in terms of manpower, material, and and, and a, a major major operation, but it does mean getting within missile and artillery range of 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 Ukrainian of Crimean lines of communication, dropping the sea of uh, the the uh, the Kerch bridge once and for all, uh, and making it impossible for the Russians to hold on to. And I think that could have a massive impact on Putin's mind and the minds of the Russian people um no and then I think then you're in the business of actually getting to a stage where victory becomes possible. but the quicker that happens, the more it's got to happen quickly because the lot because the it's more decisive speed equals decision and therefore hence coming back to some of the early discussions about Western support um and I really worry you know the real risk here is that this slow 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 break in battle fight which is going to become even more difficult in the winter the fighting will go on throughout the winter when the weather gets bad um and that's you know so that's a fact but it's going to slow down and so coming and then tie that in with the focus on israel palestine and gaza uh westerns the challenge of providing ammunition and, and capability from the west the You know, the factories are running dry, the supply lines are running dry. Uh, Western armies and militaries, air forces and navies have divested themselves of huge amounts of kit to provide to Ukraine. All that's got to be replaced. And meanwhile, life goes on as normal here. There's no recognition that to do this, it's got to be paid for, that you've got to ramp up defence spending in in order to achieve that. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak is saying, well, we might try and get to two and a half percent when the economy allows that's not good enough. We've got to make sacrifices in the way that the Ukrainians are making sacrifices on our behalf, because it's about our security as well as Ukrainian security, and it's about sending a global message about the West and the, and democracies' willingness to stand up to uh, autocracies and and genocidal tyrants like Putin.
0: And one is, is one of the reasons why there is that uh, lack of focus uh, on victory and what it entails. Because people are not spending the time to think about what a Russian victory actually means, even if that victory, inverted commas, is a kind of forever conflict um, along the lines that it currently is. Are we not thinking really what the implications are of Russia gaining traction, not just there, but starting to rebuild its networks of influence across Europe, um, building its networks of sort of bribery and privilege? Uh, And of course, we see extraordinary uh, expansion within uh, very delicate areas of African continent. Uh, there's been, I think, nine or 10 coups uh, in the last year or so um, with Wagner implicated behind many of them. Um, and of course there is money, material, raw materials, gold, diamonds, etc., to be had there. These are all resources that can allow Russia to continue it's forever war.
1: I think the first point is the why. Why don't people recognize it? I think if you went to, you know, if you go and talk to Estonians or Latvians or Lath- Lithuanians, and if you talk to Poles, they get it. They absolutely get it. Of course they do. Because they know they are threatened by it. Go to Hungary and go to Slovakia now with a feat show victory. There, Hungary will have a very different attitude. There is Orban a member of nato a member of an alliance supporting ukraine who continues to cozy up to um to putin because you know because he's thinking about uh, and and at the same time um you know taking eu money um and 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 uh, you know, applying a very different approach to m- democracy and and and, uh, and media media freedom and the like come go further west come to this country people are just simply not frightened they're not worried life goes on Ukraine yeah we support Ukraine of course we support Ukraine everybody you stop anybody in the street in this country and they'll be they'll be in supporting they'll they'll support Ukraine but but the political focus here is very very different and this requires vision and leadership and courage from our political leaderships
0: And we're perhaps not paying attention. I mean, we already are seeing, I think this week it was announced that an ex-government minister has joined the board of a company that actually is owned by two uh, sanctioned Russian oligarchs. Um, Is there amongst some quarters a keenness to return to business as normal, which would be extremely undermining for this effort to achieve a decisive victory in Ukraine?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Of, um, but I mean, to your point about, about uh, I mean, drain the swamp, London, what's happened there? A lot of talk at the start of this war. Uh, yeah, uh, is that really, really happening? Um, I, I, I I don't know. It's certainly not up there in the media. And it'd be good to see a bit of media investigative journalism to establish the extent to which the swamp has really been drained. Well, oh, sorry, I'm starting now. Um, I would also say business as usual. Absolutely. Uh, And I would highlight Germany here particularly, where German businessmen for the last 20, 30 years have done really well in Russia, established and and, and established really good links in Russia. And there is a very strong message in Germany that the sooner we return to business as usual with Russia, the better. Uh, Germany is you know that the with a with a with a, this is one of the Schultz's problems. he He may want to be more be, be bolder, but he leads a party full of russische Verstehers, people who so-called understand Russia a, 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 a sort of a euphemism for Russian sympathizers um with, with a with a very different view. and and I think we've got to get that message out that the, you know there won't be business as usual. What happened on the 22nd of February, what is still continuing to happen in Ukraine, our world has changed fundamentally, and we need to wake up and really smell the coffee on that.
0: Well, that's an incredibly strong message to end on. I hope more people will hear this. Um, we are going to be running events um, over the next couple of months uh, in uh, attending events rather in Paris. Uh, hopefully in Berlin in the new year and running an event again in Ukraine next year. Um, But this message can't get out there, you know, quickly enough, I think, to decision makers. So I'm so glad that you uh, shone a spotlight on many of these important topics. So, Richard, it's, as usual, a massive pleasure uh, speaking to you. And I'm sure we will have much more to talk about as the winter campaign plays out as well.
1: Jonathan, thank you very much, and uh, as always, very good to talk to you.